Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff of Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, October 9, 2022. Today's message title, How to Have Hope in the Midst of Opposition, a study in the book of Nehemiah. Let's first stand as we go into Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, we're going to start with verses 7 and 8, and we're going to read these words. Um, here it says, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Asadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to conf- and cause confusion in it. Amen. So you may be seated. Let's start there. So as we read through Nehemiah, uh, if you're coming for the, uh, like I said last week, if you're coming for the first time and you're thinking, who's Sanballat? Who's Tobiah? What wall are we talking about? What's going on? Uh, we try to work our way through the books of the Bible and Nehemiah chapter four is where we're at. And so uh, we start to notice a sort of trend happening here in the book of Nehemiah. On one hand, you have prayer and complete dependence on God from the Jews who are trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that have been destroyed by war. They have been for decades now vulnerable to attacks, living by the mercies of their enemies, trying to survive, but really never thriving. And so Nehemiah comes in and and you see this like total dependence on God, even in the midst of last week, we were reviewing their way of mocking the Jewish people to stop the word of God. And On the other hand, you see a theme in the enemies of the Jewish people and the enemies of God. And they were increasing in hatred and anger uh, in all the surrounding areas. And here the Jewish people have committed themselves to build the the wall. We read last week that it was about half of its height um, and they were mocking them for this tiny little wall that they were building. Here they, they turn though from their taunts and mockery to threats. They see the wall coming together, half of its height, beginning to connect and come together. And here we see sort of the emptiness of the mockery that we were just thinking about last week. Uh, in the previous verses, they were mocking the wall for basically being not being able to withstand a fox jumping on, on it. It was just crumbled to the ground. And now they're mad because the wall is actually coming together and the mockery and taunts were just sort of empty words. They knew that progress was being made. And so that's why they were taunting them. And and just remember this, as you face uh, mockery, and honestly, sometimes actually, uh, we're about to baptize a couple of people who, who, who come from a context where that's not the case. But here in Iceland, so often we, we think mockery is the worst thing that we can experience. And sometimes it feels like the worst thing you can experience, right? If people are against me on social media, they're mocking me, they think little of me. Um, but just remember this, in face of mockery, sometimes it is thrown your way in a belittling sense. But in reality, they're mad because they see what your work could result in if you were to keep going in this direction and to, to serve God. And I want to continually bring this to our remembrance as we walk through Nehemiah, 
when you commit yourself to build, you have an enemy who will commit himself to use his power and employ others in his service to tear down, right? It's not really cool or vogue to talk about Satan anymore, but he's still there, be assured. He's still there waiting as you commit yourself to say, man, I'm, I'm gonna work for God. I'm gonna commit myself to what I know God is calling me to do. There is an enemy waiting to destroy what you are trying to build. And think about this, right? We celebrate the resurrection, but we have to remember that the resurrection came only first through death, right? We talk a lot about victories. <laughs> you are more than conquerors. That's, that's a great coffee mug verse to, to dwell on in the morning. But what does conquering actually means? It actually expects there to be a battle. Like, have you ever met a conqueror who didn't fight a battle first? <laughs> That's not how it works. That's the definition of being a conqueror. So if we talk about victories, if we talk about conquering, all this type of stuff, really what we're, what we're kind of laying the groundwork for is to be expectant of spiritual battles happen, happening in the spiritual realm, right? It's not that bad to make the devil angry. It's not bad. I actually hope and wish that for all of you. I remember this passage in scripture that has just kind of blew my mind, right? There are these guys who are the sons of a Jewish priest, I think, and, uh, and they're going to try to do exorcism and they see it working for the Christians. And so they, they go in and they try to exorcise the demon and they say, well, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul mentions, get out. <laughs> and I find it fascinating that in the scriptures, it says, I, I know Jesus. <laughs> I know Paul but who are you guys? <laughs> I don't know anything about you guys. And the scripture actually, like scripture is funny, right? By the way, if you don't know this, sometimes you read the scripture, you just have to laugh. And he beat them up so bad that they ran out of the house naked, the Bible says. And I was just imagining a, a really bad exorcism session going on there. But that, that, that always like stuck in my mind. Like, wow, there are demons who know who Paul the apostle is. Like, okay, Jesus, I get but Paul the apostle, like he's wrecked so much havoc on the kingdom of darkness that they actually know the reputation of this one guy who just walks around earth. Please come, don't come into my house, right? Type of deal. Now the mockery of the enemies of the Jews, it came to a halt. And in its place arose a plan to take action and to actually assault the people of God following his will. And, and don't miss the irony here. <laughs> They're building a wall because without the wall, they have no protection. They've lived in poverty. They've lived at the mercy of their enemies, basically saying, please don't come and pillage and destroy and kill us. And so now Nehemiah comes and says, we have to build a wall for our protection. And in some way, their threats of attack are just sort of reinforcing why they need a wall to begin with. <laughs> don't build the wall or else we're going to kill you. Like that, that was actually the idea behind the wall, right? <laughs> if any of the Jews were not sure if they actually needed it to put in the hard work to build here, this was a case right in front of their eyes that they actually needed to do the work. So we can defend ourselves from these types of situations. But I'm sure that there were Jewish people in their midst who struggled with this question, is it worth? Is it worth doing all this work? Is it worth building a wall in light of their threats, in light of this opposition? What if we just stop? And we're actually good for now. Okay, who knows what's gonna happen in five or 10 years, right? Anybody like me who just thinks about the problem 
way down the, the line. Am I the only ones? Is that we have a saying for it. In Iceland, this is a later problem. <laughs> I was told that when I was painting uh, my walls black as a, as a disgruntled teenager, it's like people told me, you know how hard it's going to be to repaint this wall? <laughs> Any other color? It's like, that's a, Right. That is a problem for a later date. And I'm sure these Jewish people were looking at the threat saying, man, it's really bothering them. It's kind of rocking the boat. It's messing with the status quo. It seems that they're really ramping up their rhetoric here and really pushing now from mockery and taunts, which we're kind of used to. And now they're actually getting ready to fight us and kill us over this wall. Maybe our best bet is just to simply stop. Let's stop right now. I'm sure there were some, right? I'm sure you might be putting yourself in that situation. I, I probably would have thought that way. <laughs> but as I said, so many of us fail in getting what we want most because we settle for what we can get right now. And here is a very tempting scenario to let go of the future, stop looking at the whole picture, focus just on the here and now. Have you heard this somewhere else? Just live in the here and now. Hashtag YOLO, right? <laughs> live the in no winner. That's a really big trend here in Iceland. Live the in no winner. Just live in the here and now. You have religious traditions that tell you that one of your highest goals should be to dwell in the here and now, to soak it all in. But remember, the here and now, I don't know if you've gone through that, here and now can be painful at times. Have you been there? Like where, where the best scenario is like, people are like, dwell in the here and now. It's like, well, I don't want to. This, this is painful. This is horrible. Why would I want to dwell in the here and now? But the reality is this. If you want real hope, you have to be able to see beyond the here and now. And perhaps the irony is this, if you really, really want to enjoy the here and now and every here and now that you go through, you have to have a vision beyond the here and now. You have to see that there's a purpose and a point behind what's happening right now. And, and this must be remembered. And, and you might be thinking this only applies to the bad days. Like when you get a bad diagnosis, when you look at your bank account and, and uh, the numbers are in red or something like that. No, no, no. This is also with regards to the, the, the most joyful experiences you will have in life. If you really want to enjoy the here and now, you have to be able to see beyond it. Because in your worst days, when you have nothing to look inwardly at and you have no strength left and you have no hope in the situation right here and right now, if you can see beyond it, if you can remember that one day your savior and his nail-pierced hands are going to wipe away your tears, that can make it more bearable. But also, <laughs> and perhaps this applies more to Iceland, because if we're good, we don't want anything else. Like I was just blown away by this the other day. I had Subway the first time when I was like 14. Huh? Okay, and you're like, how does a Subway fit into this? But I got, I got a Subway melt when I was 14. And I'm literally the character. It's like, if it's okay, I'm not going to change anything. It's been 16 years and I've only had one Subway in my entire life. <laughs> one type of Subway with the same ingredients because it works, right? And here's the thing. If, I don't even know how the Subway actually 
It had something to do with what I was saying. Uh, if you want real hope in the here and now, beyond here, you, yeah, when the good days are coming. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. When the good days are here. Like when you go in through and you look at your bank account, you're like, man, this is amazing. Or you're having really, really cool and awesome experiences as, as we have an American couple here that moved for, for three, four months and they're really enjoying it and, and they don't know what's coming. So just let them have their moment. <laughs> no, uh, uh, but you, you have these really awesome experiences like, man, life couldn't get any better than this. This is awesome. Then again, you must be able to look beyond the here and now. Because the problem for most of us is not that we ask of too much of God for too much joy, for too much enjoyment, but rather because we settle for too less. Most people live their lives for that experience, this awesome experience, the mountaintops of lives. But if you are able to look beyond the here and now, you might be able to enjoy that. Say, this is great. But what's crazy is what's coming is even better. <laughs> and to know that if this stops for any reason i'm not i'm not broken right i have a better hope a lasting hope that's not based on current circumstances you you have to be able to look beyond the here and now one of the things that as as my son was going through uh the cancer therapy uh the verse that kept popping up in my mind was hebrews 12 1 through 2 and I, I kept on reading this verse over and over and over again. These are profound words. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That first half, I always misunderstood. So I'm like, first of all, what's a cloud of witnesses? I've seen some strange clouds here in Iceland. Never seen that one, right? but he's talking about, men. we have a multitude of witnesses. And I always thought of that as, oh, you got a bunch of people who serve God faithfully, who are now in heaven with their hands crossed like this. It's like, what is the plebeian Gunnar going to do today? It's going to impress me, right? He just read over like all these heroes of the faith who did amazing things for God. But I'm just like, man, they're, they're judging me over how bad I am at being a Christian. <laughs> and they went through all their sacrifices. And no, no, no. This here, the word for witnesses is actually the Greek word martyr. You might know that word. That actually means witness. And here, what he's trying to say is all these people that came before you are not witnesses of what you're doing, but witnessing to you of the greatness of God. Of the fact that even at the end of the chapter, he's sort of like, he's done with all the, the big name heroes of the faith. And he goes beyond, and then there are more fool who were killed and sawed in half and, you know, but they didn't give up, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, that's great. But he's saying all these people, I just said, all these people, I just counted up. They're telling you that God is amazing, that God can do whatever he sets his will to do and sacrificing whatever you need to be where he is, is worth it. That's what he's saying there. Since you're surrounded by this multitude of witnesses telling you, man, look to the future. Look to Christ, he's worth it. And then he goes on, says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Right? Did you think you were the founder and protector of your faith? I have really good news. <laughs> no, no, you're not. <laughs> before the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Sometimes you have to look beyond the here and now to have strength to actually walk through it. 
Sometimes simply focusing on the here and now is the worst possible thing you can do in a situation. If the Jewish people would have settled for safety in that moment, they would have been given up lasting security in the future. In our fight against our sinful flesh, if we are to have endurance for the race that is set before us, that can be difficult, there can be obstacles and so on and so forth. There are challenges coming up. We have to be able to remember that this is just a quick stop on our way to our real home, to our lasting home. See what Jesus did? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's amazing. Like, I think we've kind of like, because we've made the cross the symbol of our faith, we've kind of like, oh, that's a nice thing. Maybe I'll get an earring, you know, with with this thing. That this is a, a Roman torturing device. And it's like you walking around with a needle hanging out of your ear. People ask, why do you have a needle? Oh, it's the, it's the way they kill people. They, they inject him with poison. Like, That's an odd thing to wear as a jewelry. Like, I'm not, by the way, if you're like trying to hide your earrings, I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But here's the thing. How do you endure a Roman torturing device? It, it was developed. It was not just a way to kill people. It was a way to humiliate them and prolong their dying so that they can be mocked and tortured while they die. Right? People who died from crucifixion usually died from suffocation. If you didn't know this, not from bleeding or anything else, but rather because their hands were carrying their body weight and it was difficult to breathe. And in order to breathe, you had to push up to be able to catch a breath, let go, exhale, do it again. So, you know, the thieves on the cross, have you ever wondered why they broke their legs? So that they would suffocate more quickly. This was, how, how, how do you endure this with joy? <laughs> like what possible thing? If someone would have walked up to Jesus and be like, well, you know what Buddha said? They have to live in the here and now. <laughs> would that be great advice? No. How do you have joy? You need something beyond this moment. It was not the physical suffering that was the joy for Jesus. It was not the mockery or humiliation. No, it was to see beyond the cross to know that it would result in an empty grave, a resurrection and Jesus being back with his father in glory, having died for the sins of people like you and me. The joy set before him, oddly enough, in some sense was you. Think about how weird that is. You were the joy set before in some sense. Because of his death, he was opening up the door for eternal life for you, for me. And in his suffering, he was securing our joy in him with his blood. He took on the punishment and shame of our sins, allowing us to stand before the judgment seat of God, realizing that our judge is no longer our judge, but also our defender. How weird that is. But turning back to Nehemiah 4, we see that they didn't attack. God had a plan for his people. It's Satan's strategy to use fear to paralyze the work. It didn't work. And so let me, let me say this, brothers and sisters, if, if God has called you to a work with eternal significance, to save souls, to share Jesus in your life and your words, do not let fear paralyze you. You have been made the sons and daughters of the king of the universe who is with you. 
even as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I love that about Psalm 23. Verse four says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. This takes away sort of naive version of Christianity that says, man, if you just confess Christ, your life is going to be awesome. <laughs> Tell that to Jesus as, as he was hanging on the cross. It's going to be comfortable. You're going to be so, so blessed. Now this takes away the naive version of Christianity that says, man, if you have Jesus, there's going to be no valley. No, he says, there is going to be a valley, but your comfort is not going to be in the valley or the mountains or the plains. It's going to be who is with you there. Will you see only the valley if you find yourself in there or Christ with you in it? And even as we talk about the Bible in our English language today, I'm reminded that this week uh, on the 6th of October in 1563, a man by, uh, by the name of William Tyndale, he was strangled to death and burned at the stake for translating the Bible into the English language that we're reading today. He was condemned for heresy and his last words were a prayer that God would open up the eyes of the King of England, who four years later started producing English translated Bibles based on Tyndale's work, who was murdered for doing that four years earlier. I don't know about you, but I'm just thinking <laughs> the word of God came to us. We have access to this because of giants who came before us. And we may know some of their names like William Tyndale and yet others who were just faithful, no name citizens, <laughs> just faithfully serving God. We thought about how weird it is that we're here on an island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, worshiping the God of Israel. That's, that's strange. And that happened because of faceless, nameless people we will only meet in glory who were used by God in their faithfulness to share the love of Jesus, to stand on his truth, even at great consequences and cost. And here we are. And the question we're raised with is, and are we going to do the same? <laughs> if the Lord tarries, if he waits another 10 years, if he waits another hundred years, if he waits another thousand years, will we be a link in that chain or as the Jewish people are looking at the opposition they're facing, will we fold and say, this is too much. And it's very easy if you just focus on the here and now. It's really easy to say, man, I just want to be liked by people, right? I don't want to be this controversial guy. <laughs> I don't want to have to say these things. <laughs> it's really easy to give in. But man, as I, as I think about these Jewish people in Nehemiah chapter four, as I, as I think about the list of, uh, in Hebrews 11, as I think about Jesus dying on the cross for, as I think about us reading an English translated Bible, I'm thankful for brothers and sisters who came before me who refused to settle for momentary pleasure and yet forfeiting, forfeiting <laughs> eternal joy. But I'm glad that William Tyndale was able to see the suffering he was about to go through and yet know what was coming was way better than he could ever imagine. So I ask us, what or who is it that you value most? We see the value of the Jewish people with Nehemiah in the following verse in Nehemiah 4, 9, it says, and we prayed to our God and we set guard as protection against them day and night. 
Now they turn to God. They, they could have thrown up their hands saying, God, looks like you're failing our prayer requests here. We have prayed and they're, they're threatening to murder us. So uh, I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for building a wall. You know, could have easily done that. But through their threats, they turned closer to God. And I ask myself, isn't that the same for us? When we face difficult circumstances, we have two choices. Do I turn to God or do I run away from him when I need him the most? God in his wisdom and sovereignty being able to remove, remove any threats or discomfort chose not to. And you, you're left with this question like, why? Why didn't he just make it easy for them to build this wall? Why does the psalmist talk about the valley in Psalm 23? I believe difficult circumstances are not removed because in them we draw actually closer to intimacy with God. From a personal experience, let me tell you this. The presence of God has never felt as close nor has my prayer life ever been as deep and good or amazing as it has been in the valley. Right When I'm overcome with just sorrow and pain, and I can try, like I'm, I'm, I'm an introvert. I can try to share with people. Feels uncomfortable. <laughs> like, yeah, this is, um, this is bad, you know. But I don't have the vocabulary, and and they, I can try to use all the vocabulary I have to describe the pain I'm going through. Yet none of them will fully understand. Even no matter how much they try to sympathize or empathize with me, they cannot understand what I'm feeling. And that at that moment, you realize, man, God can. He, he knows me more than I do. Hebrews talks about we have a sympathetic high priest who has walked through suffering and knows what suffering is like. And I can turn to him and he knows the hairs of uh, how many hairs I have on my head. He knows me better than I do. And even though I lack the words to describe how I'm feeling in that moment, he alone, he alone understands more than anybody around me. And to be faced with that reality in the valley is amazing. It's odd because some of the difficult circumstances in my life, I look back and I'm like, man, I want that prayer life back. I want that like, because I was so aware of how limited I was. Like Icelanders were asked the question, what do you believe in? Right? You know, what's the most common answer? I think I've referred to this a bunch of times in sermons. The most common answer was, I believe in myself. <laughs> And I just want to walk up to every Icelander and say, how is that going for you? <laughs> because have you never been at a place where I have nothing left? Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I can't work my way out of this. At that moment, I've never been as close to God. The valley raises up an urge in us when we feel the brokenness of the world that we live in, our soul starts to long for a better world. And I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said this, man, if you have an urge that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most logical explanation is that you were created for a different world. And in the valley, there's an urge that rises. It says, this shouldn't be this way. And it seeks out for eternity. It cries out for eternity. Our souls cry out for eternity. And if you, at that moment, decide to, to give up let go of experiencing the hope in Jesus at that moment when no words can describe the hurt that you feel and the despair that you're going through other than God himself. If you decide to walk away, you've let go of eternal joy for the sake of perhaps just momentary feeling better about yourself. 
You see, our problem is not that we're asking for too much. The problem is that with most in the world, we settle for too little. When we choose momentary comfort, if there are threats or difficult circumstances because of our faithfulness to God and we choose, ah, I'm going to let go and just experience this sort of like pat on the back for my people and I want to be popular and I don't want, you know, I'll follow Jesus, but as long as he's going the same direction, I was going to go anyway type of deal. If you let go of Jesus in that moment, what you're doing is settling for less. You're settling for momentary pleasure. And as a guy who's been there, who's tried the, the alcohol, the drugs, everything else, to try to fill that need, let me tell you, that's not going to satisfy the screams of your soul for something more. Like Augustine of Hippo put it this way, you have created us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. you there's nothing in this world that can satisfy that longing. But in Christ, we have a joy that knows that even if everything else around us crumbles, the rock of our hope is still in place. The fact that you are known and loved by your God and your creator. He's no longer simply a judge. He is your defender. He's your savior. That joy is always in place, even in the midst of grief. And it's weird. <laughs> even in the midst of grief, that truth is unchanging. And so they turn to God, they depend on him fully, but they also do this one thing that is kind of weird. They set up guards against the city. So they appeal to God, even as they look at the means that God has already given them to defend themselves. They say, God, would you defend us? And then they pick up their swords. <laughs> like, um, they use their sanctified common sense to set up protection using willing servants of God to be the wall until the wall is built. I don't know about you, but it would have been easy to spiritualize this situation. Oh, Nehemiah, aren't you exposing a little doubt in your prayer there? God, would you protect us? And then grabbing the sword. I remember when I was a, I was a youth pastor. <laughs> I was telling the kids, like I was driving them home after youth service. And they were like, you have to put on your seatbelt, guys. Oh, no worries. I prayed about my safety. Like, no, you have to, you have to put on your seatbelt. Why? Don't you believe God can keep me safe? <laughs> this type of deal. And I was like, <sighs> so I, I answered this kid one, one day like this. Like, okay, so let's say we die in a horrible car crash as I take you home to your parents. And we're face to face with God. And you said, God, I prayed for your safety. And he said, I gave you a brain and a seatbelt. <laughs> like, come on. You know, so what we have here is Nehemiah is saying, God, defend us. Fight for us, protect us as he goes and grabs his sword <laughs> and says, we're going to defend the city because we know we're supposed to build this thing. Do not fall into the trap of thinking I'm going to pray for success and then not seek to do anything about it, right? Do not fall into the thinking that, man, God, I prayed about this. If God, sometimes the answer to prayer is the fact that God has equipped you to be the answer to prayer in your own life or in someone else's. Right, where there's a James that says, what a, what, a, what a messed up religion. You say, be comforted and fed and on your way. Right? No, if you have the means to feed them and comfort them, do that. Perhaps on your way to success, if you're in here and you're like, man, I want to I wanna be successful. I wanna, I'm going to pray for that. Perhaps. While you take steps towards success, God in his grace 
will give you lessons to teach you on the way so that you have the character and humility to actually handle success when it comes. Our prayers do not replace our actions. They make our actions effective for the work of God. And so it says day and night, they stood watch and it sent these three messages to the people of God in Jerusalem. It says, we're committed to this. Our, our God is greater than any obstacle, any mockery, any threat. We will continue to do this work to the enemies of God outside the walls. It said, you will not succeed in this. Fear will not paralyze us or control us. God's work will not be stopped no matter the sacrifice we need to make. And to God, it says, we trust in you. Our faith is living and active. A faith, not only of words and prayers, but of action. It said, we love you. We trust you. You are our Lord. Your word rings louder in our ears than the threats of our enemies. What we do often preaches much louder and clearer than what we say. And as you, and I, I know that's kind of pointless because I'm up here saying a lot of things, <laughs> but actually if, if my life does not match what I'm saying, it doesn't matter what I say. As you seek to pray and you share your faith through words, remember to reflect your faith in your actions. Now I'm a firm believer of the truth of James in the Bible when he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. Martin Luther, one of the reformers put it this way. We are saved by faith alone, but a faith that does not stand alone, meaning our faith should call us to action. Like how troubling it would be if I came face to face with the creator of the universe and nothing would change. And yet that is very common in the church, right? Like, yes. Oh yeah. I met my creator. And he basically just told me, Gunnar, you've been doing a great job up until now. Just keep doing what you're doing. You know? No, Martin Luther said, our faith has to have practical implications. And when I say, I believe in the truth of James that says, you know, faith without works is dead. I also mean that these truths are not only applied to our, our, our church or Christians in general, that what we believe in is actually revealed in what we do more than in what we say, but rather that these truths are sort of evident everywhere for everybody to Christianity, to all ideologies. I think, I think often what we believe <laughs> you can say, man, I subscribe to the 1689 London Baptist confession of faith or whatever, or, but man, if, if your life does not reflect that, it doesn't matter what, confession of faith you subscribe to. And I was thinking about it this week, actually, because this truth is evident, not only for the Christians, is also evident for other ideologies and religions. Our actions reveal what we truly believe. And I was thinking about this as I was looking at the actions of the Jewish people here in Nehemiah saying, no, we're, we're actually not just going to pray about this, not, not just going to talk about this. We're going we're gonna to do this thing, even in the midst of opposition. Take, for example, the Buddhist teaching of physical reality simply being a, a mere illusion, right? Or, or take, for example, the atheistic worldview who I, I was like, man, I'm so glad for the grace of God because I was, I was really close to subscribing to that idea at one point in my life. That when it's taken to its logical conclusion, there's no real purpose or meaning to life. And then you ask the question, then why value life? Why value human life? 
Why, if it's all about the survival of the fittest, am I taking care of my disabled son? Why should I love sacrificially? If this is all I get, if 60 to 80 years is all you get here on earth, why should you not use others if it is within your means to make your life here more comfortable? Why should you self-sacrificially love? And if you ask that question, the atheist, the Buddhist who believes that reality is a mere illusion, they know that they actually are supposed to value life. They know there's something inherently value, valuable about this. They see the beauty and self-sacrificial love, yet that's not, it's not coherent with what they actually believe. And so there you even say, faith without works is dead. You do not behave according to your worldview. You value these things because inwardly you know God is there. And you can quote Romans 1. <laughs> like we all know, and yet we decide to worship the creation rather than the creator. And thinking ourselves to be wise, we became fools. We are foolish as a society because we say we believe in one thing and yet our actions betray what we actually believe. We know there's worth in human life. We know there's purpose to life. So the works of the Jewish people sent a clear message that their trust in God it sent a clear message of defiance towards their enemies, even in the face of grave danger and big threats. Their faith was active and living, but still it seems that some struggled with doubt as we read on and we close out our sermon. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to them, said to us 10 times, you have to return to us. So in the lowest part of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and who, Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Being at a halfway point is a dangerous place to be, right? Because you've done so much already that you feel the sacrifice of moving back, but also there's so much left to be done. You may be encouraged, but you also may be very tired. So a race is not determined by how you start but rather by how you finish. And for the Jewish people, the race is not over. So they face doubts from within. As they say to themselves and among themselves, there's too much rubble here. The rubble had to be cleaned. There was no option to, to simply ignore it. It had to be done and it was hard work. And so in our walk with Jesus, there may be times when we are overwhelmed by the rubble in our own life, in our own life but nothing can be built to the glory of God, unless we face the rubble and we give ourselves to the hard work of cleaning it up by the grace of God. Taking out the garbage can be discouraging work, but it has to be done. So maybe reflect on your own life. What is the rubble that you face? Is it laziness? Is it focusing on the present without seeing how a whole life can be built for the glory of God? Are you stuck in cycles of sin? 
And you've been a Christian for years now and you just keep dealing with the same thing. And the enemy is saying, it's like, does that really make you a good Christian? Is it lust? Is it greed? Is it selfishness? It can be very hard to pick up your cross daily and follow Christ, but it's the only way forward. Now, some people will not face their trust. They will ignore it. Have you seen this show called the hoarders? <laughs> These people who just collect things that are of no value to most people and their apartments are just filled with trash all over the place. And some of them actually like, they are not choosing to ignore it. They're reveling in the trash. I love this. That's how some of us are spiritually. Unable to let go of the old. And so we ask God, why aren't you building anything new? <laughs> well, the trash is in the way. So they face doubts from every side. In verse 11, they face continued threats from the outside. In verse 12, they have even fellow Jews from outside the city saying, hey, and these are people who love them saying, hey, come to us. Come, come back to the little towns and villages outside of Jerusalem. It's safe there. You don't have to build this wall. Come and be safe with us. The pressure is intensifying, but this only made them aware of the coming attack so that they could prepare for it as they did in verse 13, exploring the weaknesses and focusing on defending the city where it was most weak and vulnerable. Discouragement can come from all directions, from your own doubts, from threats of other people, and even people telling you to stop for your own good. But remember that they had their sights on God. So just as we live in a very comfortable society, remember this. Discouragements will come. And if you let them plant their seed in you, they're, they're going to grow. It's when you decide to really focus your eyes on God. That's when you can look at discouragement and yet see the whole picture and decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look to God. If Jesus set his sights on the joy set before him, I'm going to do the same and set my sight on Jesus. Like, I don't know about you. I, I've been told if you're too heavenly minded, you're going to be of no earthly good. But the reality of this, if you look at human history and you look at the people who did most for people here and now, it was actually people who had their minds on heaven, who had their eyes on God, who realized, man, even if I'm working towards something that I'm not even going to see come to, uh, come to be reality in my lifetime, I'm still going to do it. Even as you, as you, as you think through uh, inventors and scientists, and, like they were all heavenly minded. A lot of them like were dwelling on Psalm 19, how creation doesn't say a word, but it screams out the glory of God. And they said, I want to know my God. And even if it work means work that I can't solve, but someone else can take over and that it can benefit people. The people who have blessed the here and now the most are the people who had their eyes on heaven. Some labored to build schools and churches and hospitals and libraries, gave themselves to the study of sciences and helping the poor and destitute, even while knowing that they might not see the fruit of their labors. But focusing on God gave them the drive to do it. And in verse 9, uh, 14, Nehemiah reminds them that even as they may face grave danger, remember why you're doing that. First, remember God. Second, remember the people whom you are called to love and protect and serve. To remember the people whom you will bless with your work. And to us, dear family of faith, let me remind you to stay vigilant. Stay 
with your eyes firmly fixed on God to live lives to the glory of God and to the good of other people. And coming to Sundays may help you in that. I hope communion reminds you of why we do what we do every single week. We're remembering our crucified Messiah who died to pay our debt. But also I want to remind you, like in this text, we see that as they face discouragement, God used Nehemiah to remind them of the hope to come. Like to me, that's a beautiful picture of community and what God intends for us to have community for. We are here to remind ourselves that there's more than just here and now. And if you're going through the mountaintops of life, it won't be anything compared to the glory that is to come. And if you're going through the valleys of life, nothing in this world will separate you from the love of God. And so as we say this, I'm glad that you're here on a Sunday, but I also hope that you connect into community with other believers where you read your Bibles together, where you ask uncomfortable questions about what you're dealing with so you can actually be honest and prayerful towards one another so that you can hold each other accountable. And uh, one of the things that I I added to the website of the church this week was uh, I added to our materials page on the website, uh, a tab called Discovery Bible Study. Um, Man, that projector is horrible, yeah. If you go to materials on our page, there's, there's a tab there that says discovery Bible study. And it's a very simple method where anybody in here, you don't need a leader of a group or anything like that. Simply two or three or four or 15 of you can say, Hey, let's meet together once a week. Let's read through a book of the Bible. And here are four or five questions we can ask to understand the text better. What questions arise? What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about humanity? And let me just encourage you, if you're not plugged in, if you don't have anybody in here that you feel comfortable confessing your struggles and sins with and doubts with, let me encourage you. That's a very easy way. We also put there a little bit below, like 20 questions that you can ask that are accountability questions. Uh, But you can pick one or two and just say, all right, I want to ask you about this. How are you doing in this area? And also it challenges you. What are you going to do about the reality of the text this week? How is your life or your thinking going to change in light of this? So let me encourage you as we have lunches after service all the time. My hope is that you get to know one another. And if you're not plugged in that you would say to someone, Hey, can we meet up every week at this time or every other week or, you know, whatever God allows for you to do. And I really hope you get plugged in. And if, you, if, you, if you're trying and you just can't, I, I would love for you to come and talk to me after the service. Uh, but we're going to pray. We're going to remember the hope that we have in Jesus. And also we're going to see a baptism where we remember if you're a Christian in here, we've been buried with Christ and raised to newness of life. And we're actually going to share a little bit of a testimony of someone stepping into grave danger. And even in the face of threats of violence, they were faithful to Jesus and sharing his word with other believers. So let me pray for us as we go into that. Father, we thank you and praise you for your faithfulness, for your grace and your mercy. 
We thank you for everything that you've done for us. And I pray that, Father, you would give us eyes to see what you are doing around us. As we, as the opinions of men may ring loudly in our ears, may we seek to listen to your voice and be faithful to you and you alone. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that we celebrate what you've done as we remember the broken body of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we remember the blood that was shed for us, for our freedom, for our joy for our salvation. Father, may we never take it for granted. For those who may be struggling with the, 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 the flirt, flirting with sin, Father, I pray that we would take sin seriously as we remember that our Savior was nailed to a cross because of my sin. May we not take it lightly. And Father, I pray that as we go into this week, our worship would continue. I pray that we would pray like never before, that we would worship you in our thinking, in our actions, that we would not simply be able to tell with our words what we believe, but rather show with our actions. And so, Father, we ask that you be with us as we go into this week and continue to worship and enjoy you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kyrka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with the Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland.